With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists empowerment talk radio. Speaking truth to ours and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? As you honor our forefathers and foremothers, I urge you to honor our living heroes. When you honor the names of Matt Turner, Harriet Tubman, and Malcolm X, I urge you to honor the names of Geronimo Zijaga, Symbiata Akoli, Matulu Shakur, and Mumia Abu-Jamal. America's chickens! Coming home to roost. Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. And terrorism begets terrorism. Our common ground speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for being with us. Stay tuned. Jack White of Time Magazine wrote that inside Marsha Coleman Adebayo, there's a streak of Rosa Parks. When she tried to get the government to investigate allegations that a private multinational corporation was responsible for the deaths of hundreds of South African she found that the EPA was the first line of defense for the corporation. Rather than stand down, Coleman Adebayo set in motion the process that eventually resulted in the first civil rights and whistleblower law to be passed in the 21st century. Here at Our Common Ground, we applaud her efforts of the No Fear Foundation. We also do not forget that she was the victim of one of the most vicious, racist attacks of any employer recorded. And tonight, we'll be talking with the fearless activist, Marsha Coleman Adebayo. Welcome her to Our Common Ground in this discussion of her ordeal and her book, No Fear, A Whistleblower's Triumph Over Corruption and Retaliation at the EPA. Thank you for joining us tonight at Our Common Ground. Stay tuned.
And thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground. So glad to have you once again to speak truth to power and ourselves. Tonight we're going to be hosting Dr. Marsha Coleman Adebayo. She's an author, activist, whistleblower. We're going to be examining the cost and price of dignity, racism and corruption in your government. The name of her book, No Fear, A Whistleblower's Triumph Over Corruption and Retaliation at the EPA. And we are so pleased to have her with us, and we'll tell you more about her uh, in just a few minutes. Uh, If you are a listener and you would like to join our discussion forum, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG, and we welcome our guests and Alpho and Twee 968 um, to our chat room. And for those of you who are new to us, please do sign up at our website, www.ourcommonground.ning.com. No. Our Common Ground hyphen talk. .ning.com to receive our weekly newsletter. Before we get started, we want you to, of course, get out your pens and and paper. And um, we're going to give you a little mind shuffle here. But before we do get started, I want to note this week has been a tough week. Uh, Aside from everything's getting occupied, Uh, with the loss in our community of Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth on Wednesday. Um, If you do not know him, you need to know why he mattered in history. When Dr. King wanted to leave the Birmingham protests, Shuttlesworth convinced him to stay. Yet, he didn't make our list. When attack dogs, bloodhounds, and fire hoses terrorized blacks, Shuttlesworth demanded justice. Yet he didn't seem to make our list. His home was bombed and his body was beaten. Yet he didn't seem to make our list. He was not concerned with a legacy during the civil rights movement. And this allowed him to live unapologetically being himself. He lived never quite fitting the mold of those who we like to remember. Shuttlesworth knew this. He felt this. And we are forced because of the truth in his life to remember him. He once wrote, may the words, works I've done speak for me. May the life I've lived speak for me. When I'm resting in my grave and there's nothing more to be said, may the works I've done speak for me. I never met Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth but he was a triumphantly important man in my life. And through his work, I know him. I never touched him, but through his life, I feel him. And we should never forget Reverend Fred L. Shuttlesworth. Another lost in our community this week, a dear friend, a mentor, and someone that I will never forget, Derek Albert Bell. Professor Bell was the first tenured African-American professor of law at Harvard University 
and he is largely credited as the originator of critical race theory. He also was a dean at the University of Oregon School of Law. He and I arrived in 1966 in Boston at the same time, and he was a caretaker of many of the students who arrived at the same time. Uh, he passed on October 5, 2011, at St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital at the age of 80. You may discover him, and I suggest that you do. Uh, he was quite a prolific writer, and um, I suggest that you, if you do not, if you have not, uh, certainly read the works of Professor Derek Bell. Also this week, the, the, the world will gather to remember and have throughout the media gathered to remember um, Steve Jobs, one of the founders of Apple Computers and one of the most prolific techno-geeks techno of his, in history. We'll have to say that, in history. So we remember those th three great losses that we had uh, this week. And uh, I hope that you will certainly familiarize yourself, get to understand Derek Bell, who he was, Many of you will remember that he was the person who took, uh, in 1992, he had taken a visiting professorship of New York, uh, at New York University, and he was formally removed from the Harvard faculty because his uh, leave was in protest of Harvard Law School's inability to name African-American women to its faculty. He urged the future scholars and activists to continue the moral fight that he had championed. And um, Harvard ultimately hired, as a result of his protests, civil rights attorney and, attorney and U.S. Assistant Attorney General nominee Lonnie Guineer shortly after Derrick Bell left. And after he resigned from Harvard Law, he remained at NYU Law School, where he continued to write and lecture on issues of race and civil rights. And uh, we really encourage you uh, to know these people if you do not. Tonight here at Our Common Ground, we're going to be talking with Marsha Coleman Adebayo. She is the founder and president of the No Fear Institute in Washington, D.C., and she served as the executive secretary of the Environment Working Group of the Environmental Protection Agency's delegation to the Gore-Mbiki Binational Commission during the Clinton administration. Her victory in the Title VII complaint of the 1964 Civil Rights Act in Coleman Adebayo versus Carol Briner, Browner, inspired the passage of the No Fear Act, a notification of federal employees' anti-discrimination retaliation 
in 2002. It was the first civil rights and whistleblower legislation of the 21st century. This act was signed by George W. Bush. In 2003, Coleman Adebayo was awarded Good Housekeeping by Good Housekeeping their Women in Politics Courage Award. Harvard University recognized her with its Outstanding Commitment to Global Health and Development Award. And in 2007, she was inducted into the Project on Government Oversight Hall of Fame. She currently serves on the Board of Directors of the National Whistleblower Center, a nonpartisan, nonprofit advocacy group committed to preserving and defending the rights of employee whistleblowers in the United States. She holds a degree from Barnard College, Columbia University, and MIT. She was a fearless environmental activist. And I would say that there is definitely a contemporary Rosa Parks inside of her. She had a a decade-long struggle to clean up the racially toxic atmosphere at the U.S. EPA and made history doing it. We hope you'll stay with us. Our number is 347-838-9852. And Dr. Marsha Coleman Adebayo will be joining us. Jack White of Time Magazine wrote that inside... Uh, she was the co-sponsor of No Fear One. She is going to introduce No Fear Two. And you know that this is a warrior. At the very base of her spirit, she is a warrior. And so we thank God for her. The passage of the Congressional Disclosures Act is absolutely essential because federal government employees and their families know that testifying before Congress or even contacting a congressional office regarding corruption, discrimination, whatever, is the kiss of death for your career in the federal government. In fact, federal agencies delight in showcasing, like some form of Roman theater, the blood force of tearing federal government employees apart when they've made the courageous decision to tell the truth or to expose corruption in the federal government. With unlimited taxpayer dollars and no accountability, Many employees, like Patricia Lawson, simply die. They die at their death from hypertension, from stroke, from various forms of cancer. They're working under the enormous burden, ten, eight to ten hours a day, working under a government determined to silence their voice of conscience. Or a government entrapped and sent in the federal prison like John Grant, yes. a white man who testified on my behalf in federal court. The coalition has reports of employees being arrested on their job, of course, at 12 noon, <laughs> for the most dramatic effect when everybody is, has, has gathered for lunch so that the entire agency can witness the carnage. Warning notices, later termination is the most common form of political violence, sending a strong message to other employees that if you dare, if you dare speak out, this is what will happen to you. To blow the whistle before Congress is an act of resistance to unmitigated 
an unaccountable power. When federal employees like myself return to Congress after testifying to horror stories of intimidation and retaliation, in many instances, if you don't have members of Congress like I do, and some of us in this room do, you're greeted at best with polite disrespect or maybe disinterest. Sometimes a member of Congress will write a letter. If you're lucky, maybe you'll get two letters. To result from the Iraq War, the former chief oversight official of contracts at the Army Corps of Engineers has reached a settlement six years after she was demoted for publicly criticizing a multi-billion dollar no-bid contract to Halliburton. That's the company that was formerly headed by, well, then-Vice President Dick Cheney. The official, Bunnettine Greenhouse, known as Bunny Greenhouse, had accused the Pentagon of unfairly awarding the contract to Halliburton subsidiary Kellogg, Brown & Root, KBR. Testifying before Congress in June 2005, Bunny Greenhouse called the contract the worst case of government abuse she'd ever witnessed in her 20-year career. My name is Bunnettine H. Greenhouse. I have agreed to voluntarily appear at this hearing in my personal capacity because I have exhausted all internal avenues to correct contracting abuse I observed while serving this great nation as the United States Army Corps of Engineers Senior Procurement Executive. In order to, re to remain true to my oath of office, I must disclose to appropriate members of Congress serious and ongoing contract abuse I cannot address internally. I can unequivocally state that the abuse related to contracts awarded to KBR represents the most blatant and improper contract abuse I have witnessed during the course of my professional career. Just two months after that testimony, Bunny Greenhouse was demoted at the Pentagon, ostensibly for poor for, for performance. She'd overseen government contracts for 20 years, had drawn high praise, and her rise to become the senior civilian oversight official at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. With the help of the National Whistleblower Center, Bunny Greenhouse filed a lawsuit challenging her demotion. In this Democracy Now! exclusive, she joins us today from her home to announce that a settlement has been reached in what's seen as a major victory for government whistleblowers. Bunny Greenhouse, welcome to Democracy Now! Thank you for joining us on the line from Virginia. We're also joined on the phone by her attorney, Michael Cohn, president of the National Whistleblowers Association, and here in New York by Stephen Cohn, executive director of the National Whistleblowers Association. So welcome all. Bunny Greenhouse, first your feelings today. Well, it's a, a mixture of happiness uh, to be able to go on with the rest of my life and be a contributory American citizen, and it's a bit of sadness um, because I was postured, you know, to go on uh, with the court case, you know, that it would be a victory, you know, as well. But, you know, when I was faced a year ago, you know, with an attempt to physically harm me, I knew then that it was time to uh, get out of such a hostile environment. What do you mean? What was what happened to you last year? Well, um, uh, the day before my 66th birthday, I was directed to be at my desk uh, to, for the final day of a fact-finding on another EEO case that I had. And not knowing, being so focused on getting that done, I didn't notice that a trap had been set up for me to fall. 
and uh, it was a, a long white cord that was stretched across with a big loop on the end. And after that fact-finding session, I got up unnoticing this, and how it was so doubly looped under my file cabinet. I I tripped on this, and uh, and now the 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 kneecap on the left side doesn't move at all. And so I knew then to ask my commander to either work from home or from a, a telework official telework site, or move to another agency. And they refused to do that, saying that uh, I had to settle my global case uh, rather than that. So that's the sad part of it that I had to, you know, stop the the venture of going before a jury um, because my physical welfare had finally, you know, come into jeopardy. So after this six-year battle of Bunny Greenhouse, you've been awarded $970,000 representing full restitution for lost wages, compensatory damages, attorney fees. Um, talk about what it was that you exposed. Uh, during the Iraq War, it was during the Bush administration, President Bush, Vice President Cheney, Vice President Cheney had been the head of Halliburton. What had you exposed? Well, I had taken an oath of office that said that I was going to conduct the business of procurement and contracting in the Corps impartially, beyond reproach, with the highest degree of integrity and with preferential treatment toward none. That was federal law. And one that I and that I respected. Uh, I noticed that 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 when they sent in the um, the sole source uh, no bid contract justification, it had in there only government imposed uniquenesses of the company, you know KBR, not not their own uniquenesses, such as. Uh, a contingency plan that the uh, the winner had to be familiar with a contingency plan. That was a plan that they had the government had developed under another out of out of scope under another contract, which is like an economic analysis that determines all of the budgeting, all of the actions and movements that were going on in the prosecution of that war. Halliburton had been uh, granted that uh, privilege to do that at a two at two million dollars. I felt that that was a conflict of interest for any follow-on contracts resulting out of that contingency plan. They also had to know uh, the winner had to know uh, 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 the day-to-day -day operations of Syncom. Halliburton also had been awarded the log cap contract, you know, which also was a government-imposed uniqueness on them. So they were the only one who knew the day-to-day -day operations. So there, these were kinds of things that I felt that that was unfair, it was a conflict of interest, and that con those conflicts of interest had to be mitigated. Also, they were asking for a five-year contract for a compelling emergency. There is no compelling emergency in the world that people sitting back in Washington would not have uh, an effect upon uh, after a one-year time period, you know, to change or to continue if it was needed for the same contractor, you know, for that venture. Uh, five years just could not be tolerated. They immediately changed it to uh, a two-year base, 
and uh, three-year options when it came to me as the final signatory. Uh, when I found out that uh, General Strzok had been the person who said that it was going to the five years were going to stay, I had no choice because the war was imminent but to write my objections above my name to let them know that we possibly would be misunderstood, you know, with a, a contract for five years, even though it was two years and three one-year options. But had I not done that... And in fact, they harassed me as I was driving back to the state office from West Point, Georgia yesterday. I had at least three calls telling me the White House wanted me to resign. So the pressure came from the White House. And, and the last one asked me to pull over to the side of the road and do it. Did you, you know. do you feel as though you had an opportunity to state your side of the story? No, I didn't. The administration didn't, they were not interested in hearing the truth. Race, corruption, and retaliation in your government. This is our common ground with our guest, Dr. Marsha Coleman Adebayo. No fear. Dr. Marsha Coleman Adebayo, welcome to Our Common Ground. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm just, I'm, we're, we're thrilled to have you at this uh weekly community meeting and to talk about your accomplishments, your triumphs, and your ordeal. Um, and I, I thank you so much for your book, No Fear. Thank you so much. Let me ask you uh, as, we, as we begin, because I have prepared kind of like a an overview of what happened with you at EPA. What year, as an MIT-trained, Barnard College graduate, MIT-trained with uh, eyes on the prize g glowing in your, e in your eyes, <laughs> did you go to EPA? <laughs> I'm sorry, what was the question? <laughs> what year did you go to EPA? I, went, yeah, I started working at EPA in 1990. Uh -huh. And before I worked at EPA, I had um, worked at the United Nations. I had worked in um, disaster relief and worked on fuel with plantations, fire with, basically uh, helping communities in, in the highlands of Ethiopia develop fuel with plantations so that they could create their own uh, wood stock and energy stock. Mm -hmm. And after I left the UN, I went to the World Wildlife Fund. And um, I worked as a senior African specialist, social scientist there. And I left from the World Wildlife Fund, and I went to EPA. You survived all of that. <laughs> you survived I, I MIT. Oh, uh -huh. uh, You survived Barnard College. <laughs> you survived uh, just on the cusp, it seems, uh, of the civil rights movement. Right, right. But somehow, as a opting to federal service, right, it seemed that the wheels came off the cart. 
Right, right. Not yeah. by your own doing, by the way. And right. I, I do want you to know, and I want our audience to know, it's it's um, not very like me. I've read most of um, um, the horror stories of living in the USA, but when I read your introduction, and I want to share this mm-hmm. yeah. with my audience, um you write in your introduction that uh, um, it takes more than one broom straw to sweep the ground clean. That's right. When I extrapolate that proverb to my own life, I recognize that it took a family, a community, colleagues, and dedicated activists to fill the pages of this memoir. And I just so much, I, I, I had a tear that came up in my eye when I read that because so many people come out of ugly circum uh, ugly situations embittered and outraged to the extent that they can't see clearly who had their back and who didn't have their back and I I really do thank you for that I want to play for our audience a a clip that I put together about what this ordeal, so we can get to what happened and what were the what were the features, the most important features for you to come to some victory in this situation. Many of all of us know um, that there are trials and tribulations at every workplace, but Marsha, I have to say to you. Let me just say to you, I spent more than 18 years as the highest executive in major corporations dealing on the issues of EEO and affirmative action, and I never saw anything close to being as nasty as what happened to you at EPA and other EPA employees. Right. EPA is very much like other agencies. In fact, um, one of the reactions I'm getting from uh, federal employees who are writing to me, in fact, I spoke in front of a large group today for blacks in government, and they were literally finishing my sentences for me. Um, yes. Many people have told me that, uh, which I think is the power of, of, of my book, is that they can literally just exchange my name for their name. Their name. They mm-hmm. can exchange, you know, perhaps a particular situation that's peculiar to me for one that occurred to them. The reality is that when you have a government that's unaccountable, when you have a workplace that is unaccountable, um, then all kinds of uh, tra- tragedies and atrocities can mm-hmm. occur. And the federal mm-hmm. government workplace is totally unaccountable. Mm-hmm. No one is ever punished for the crimes they commit in the federal government. And therefore, it's a free-for-all, quite frankly. Uh, people decide that they don't like you or they don't like something about you or they don't like a particular perspective that you have, and they literally decide that they're going to crush you. And that yeah. happened in my case. My managers decided um, that they were going to crush me. Uh-huh. And it was that was way beyond just marginalizing you, but to crush you is two steps ahead of marginalizing. 
Well, they didn't care how I left, whether I was carried out or whether I walked out. Um, but they were determined that either way I was going to leave the EPA. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, you know, it's really interesting because I was thinking as I read the book, uh, and I did tag some pages and said, here's some pages and people ought to be copying this and placing it in, in, in a place. And every time, if you're a federal employee, you need to make a cover sheet and say, read this because this could very well be your future. Right. Well, one of the things <laughs> I wanted to do in the book is I wanted to give people a sense of the playbook because mm-hmm. the playbook really doesn't change that much. If you understand what the, what, the, what the terms of engagement is inside the federal government, you can watch the playbook occur. I didn't know the playbook. No one came to uh-huh. me and said, okay, first, this is what they're going to do you. Second, this is what they're going to do you. Third, this is what they're going to do, do to you. I wanted to expose the playbook so that um, if federal workers are, are, are listening to you, you know, I'm sure there are the thousands listening to your program right now. I think one of the values of the book is that I actually expose the playbook. Right. And, and yes. so if, when you're caught in that web of dysfunction, and psychotic behavior that that's so frequent in the federal government because there's no accountability. People are just sort of treating you however they want, calling you whatever they want, and and just making your life a living hell. When you're caught up in that process, sometimes you don't realize all the different forces that are impacting you. And so what I wanted to do was to deconstruct that. Mm-hmm. so that people could actually see what's happening to them. And you certainly did that in a very, very wonderful and outstanding way. Thanks. One of the things that I did do for this program is that I went online and I went to every regional big blacks in government uh, chapter and sent our program notice to the public affairs and the president asking them to email to their membership uh, the announcement of this program tonight because I have heard you speak and one of the things that I think is most important is for people to hear you talk the language of what I call organizational terrorism. Yes. And as you say, because of the unaccountability, the lack of management, the lack of a clear clear objectives for supervisors and management in the federal government, there is no accountability, and people are simply either, one, waiting in in space and time, or two, making sure that all the um, doors are locked and chained. And, and there's so a third that. one too. There's a third one too, and that is that a lot of federal employees think by just simply sticking their head in the sand, like an ostrich, that maybe it won't happen to them. And so mm-hmm. even though they're seeing the chaos and they're seeing the destruction all around them, they're they're somehow hoping that they're going to avoid that. But mm-hmm. one of the things that I like to tell federal employees is that you're only one supervisor away from having your whole life torn apart. So if you think, okay, I'm safe, my supervisor and I have gotten along for 18 years, just let that supervisor get into a car accident. And then someone else takes his place, and they decide that they're going to treat you the way you've seen other employees treated. 
and then your life is torn apart. So the point is that we all have to become active. We have to organize. We have to make sure that our lives are not some random chance. Our careers are not just a random chance of good luck. That, in fact, as you said, that there's, there are policies in place. There are laws. That laws are being enforced to make mm-hmm. sure that people are all being treated fairly. Mm-hmm. And there's another there's another aspect uh, to that that maybe we can throw into this mix for this discussion, and that is people who think uh, that they can put into place certain kinds of strategies that will immunize them, make them immune mm-hmm. to that the kind of psych. And, and I absolutely agree with you that you can characterize what I read in your book as psychopathic behavior. Right, exactly. Oh, there's no question about that. And it's encouraged um, because to the extent that these individuals um, um, carry the water, to the extent that these individuals um, carry out sort of these nefarious plans for the people in power, uh, the people in power really don't care how they're treating people be- beneath them. Um, and and, and so, in a sense, there's this very crazy reward system that goes on in the federal government that I don't actually think could go on in the private sector um, because of the market force. No, it couldn't. That are, it could I will guarantee on. you it couldn't. It couldn't go on in the private sector. Yeah, that kind of chaos wouldn't be allowed. Because you have a profit motive in the private sector. Exactly. In the public sector, uh, managers can lose the agency two, three, four million dollars and get promoted. That wouldn't mm-hmm. happen in the private mm-hmm. sector. Are, are, are never are never accomplish anything tangible and exactly. keep their jobs. Exactly, exactly, except except to protect the people above them. Exactly, right? exactly. And so, exactly. so you so you have a whole layer of managers, and their only their only um, value to the organization is that they provide credible deniability for the managers on top of them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So, for example, you have a situation at EPA very recently where the the manager who is sort of someone that it, who everyone in the agency sort of recognizes. I mean, he's he's a part of that that group that we're talking about, and he was he was um, he he reportedly called me and another woman in the, in the agency all kinds of terrible names during a national meeting. Right, you know, and he disparaged the name of Rosa Parks. He did all kinds, and he's director of the Office of Civil Rights. Okay, so he was he was going about all this 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 insanity, quite frankly. And you have the head of the agency actually, you know, issuing a press release saying that she supports him. I just don't think that can happen in the private sector. No. So 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 there's some things that the public sector needs to learn from the private sector. Um, well, but one of the things. One of the things that I noticed in your book, I kept saying, okay, where where is the human resources people talking to the operations people to say you've got an eruption that's being created here, and if you don't want it to erupt, you've got to put some some things into place. And stop some stuff. And that in your in your ordeal, I didn't see any of that. It didn't happen. And the reason why it doesn't happen is because, you know, institutions by their by their nature tend to be conservative. Institutions 
governmental institutions are more conservative than regular than than than, than sort of private sector institutions. The goal of governmental organizations is the is the is the is the, is the, is the um, concentration of power. I mean, that's one of their primary functions is to, is 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 to preserve the concentration of power. And mm-hmm. so these organizations tend not to expand, but they contract. One of the things that I talk about in the book is that is that the EPA, like other governmental agencies, have sort of a quasi-military facade to them. In other words, you've got this very stratified workplace where you've got the branch chiefs, and, and below the branch chiefs you've got the chiefs, and then you have the program <laughs> officers. You know, you, it, it sounds like a militaristic organization. If you if you're late for work, it sounds like something out of the 1940s. <laughs> right, exactly. You, you've got the eight. If you're late for work, you can you know get hit with AWOL. You can you know you can be considered you know disloyal. I mean you know it's a it's a very yeah, ar- and arcane the kind of system. And, uh, as long as you fill out the forms and move the paper, right. everything is hunky dory. Right, and exactly. That's what you get measured by. So so in yeah. other words, in the federal government, you've got two you've got two buttons. I mean it's a you know, you got two buttons. It's an on-off button. You don't have a lot of, you don't. There's not a, a lot mm-hmm. of discretion in terms of the way government managers see um, their power. And so, if 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 if, if, if at any point they consider an, a man, an employee disloyal, the whole goal of the agency at that point is to dislodge that foreign body out of the institutional network. Mm-hmm. And so no matter you, how valid. No matter, matter how valid. Oh, it doesn't matter at all. Is. No, in fact, yeah, in fact, the person could be completely right, but if they disrupt the status quo, then they're automatically considered disloyal. Mm-hmm. And you know, so, and example, in the private sector, in your situation, in the private sector, in your situation, if you had picked up the phone and called a senior vice president or even the president or CEO of the corporation and relayed the information that you were trying to relay within your organization, everything would have stopped and you would have gotten his attention and it would be without retaliation. You know what's interesting? I was talk, talking to some to big organizations, some members of the big organization today, and I said, and a good example of this is that when when my ordeal first started developing at the EPA and we were trying to settle it because I had no interest in going to court, I just wanted I wanted my issues addressed. I wanted the name calling to stop. I wanted people to stop calling me an uppity nigger. I wanted people to stop calling me an an honorary white man. I wanted people to stop calling me, you know, uh you know, worms names that they call women that they don't like. I just wanted the name calling to stop. I wanted people to respect me as a human being. That was all I that was it was it sounds so simple now. And I and I remember talking to my to my lawyer and saying, you know, why don't we just try to settle this? And my lawyer looked at me and he said, Marsha, the government doesn't see any reason why they should settle this because mm-hmm. they truly believe that they're going to win. And I was trying or to, wait you out, be able to wait you out exactly because they have the mm-hmm. institutional resources to do that. And right. and and so since only two to three percent of us prevail in court. The system is so stacked against us. The government had absolutely no reason to believe that they couldn't wait me out or they couldn't outspend me or outresource me. And so they were actually, I think, as surprised as anyone else 
when in fact, you know, not only did I wait them out, but then I prevailed in court. Mhm, mhm. I I know, um, and I do want to welcome members of Big who are joining us tonight for this w- wonderful discussion. I know that there are federal employees who buy a lottery ticket every week so that they can have the just a small, tiny, tiny chance right. at being able to <laughs> to to bring dignity to their jobs because they feel if they win the lottery, then they can hire a lawyer and get to the issues that have created absolute bedlam in their lives for many, many years. You know, I knew so many people who, who died, who became ill. And I think, you know, the, the the first chapter, you know, you read about Lillian Peston in my book, a young secretary who I met who was a, a very, very brilliant woman. And, in fact, every time you would give her something to type or some work, if she didn't know the word, she'd always look it up. And um, and I really we didn't have a long relationship, but it was a, a very meaningful relationship to me. And but her supervisor and she her first supervisor when she came to EPA loved her to death, and they had a great 18 year relationship. And he left the agency, and she was thrown to a to a supervisor who didn't respect her, and her life became a living hell. And Lillian, as you know from reading the first chapter, actually dies. Um, mm-hmm. And a large part of it was because she was, and I don't, I mean, I'm not a, a coroner, but um, but, but she was so stressed and she was mm-hmm. so, her, her whole life was just thrown completely out of whack. And the last time I saw Lillian, she was literally outside the EPA building and she was crying. And I was trying to get her to go home and take care of herself and she couldn't get a supervisor, according to Lillian, to sign off on her leave papers, and so she had to stay and she was and, she, and work. And everyone knew that Lillian had a very serious hypertensive problem, hypertensive problem. And the next day I come to work, and everyone's crying in the office. And when I asked what was going on, they said Lillian was 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 trying to ready herself for work that day, and had a massive heart attack mm-hmm. so that is the story yeah. and, and, and that's, and that's the reason why Monday is the day that so many people get sick because that's the day they're going back to work back to work yeah uh and and people do not realize and for um for those of you who are listening between family and job the biggest stressor the second Worst thing that can happen in most people's lives is that they lose their job. Yes, that's true. But the stressor is the threat of right. losing of your losing job. job. Right. And, 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 and that's and that's the hammer that's held over your head for exactly. twenty, thirty years. And that's what triggers um I mean it's you know, it's well known that that's what triggers a lot of the hypertension, mm-hmm. a lot of the heart disease, a lot of mm-hmm. the cancers is that kind of stress. Yeah. You're living and, in a and, society that your your medical insurance is tied to your job. Yeah. So if you lose your job, it's not just a job. You're losing your health insurance. You're losing your home. You you know, it's, it's it, you start falling down this um, black hole, and that's yeah. what people are so afraid of. Yeah. And, and one of the things, too, is that when 
you know, I, I look at you. I look at so many black people who go into corporations, go into organizations, well-trained. You do all the things, and that's the part in the book, of your book, where I started weeping, mm-hmm. not loudly, but quietly weeping on the train the other night as I was reading the book when you talked about you do all the right things. You right. you struggle through getting the degrees. You struggle through bad situations so that you can move on. Right. And then when people disregard it, right. disrespect it, yes. and and try to strip you, right of the value of what you have struggled so hard to have. Right. It becomes a, a form of of traumatic stress disorder. It's a form of terrorism. You're absolutely right. I mean, I didn't come from a wealthy family. My my mother literally ate peanut butter and jelly and tuna to to send me to MIT. You know, I think I mentioned that in the book that I came home on a vacation and her her shelves were full of tuna fish and and and, and peanut butter. And you know, at first it was a little scary to ask her why there was so much tuna and and peanut butter because I must have, you know, I must have known what was going on. But it was it was the stark reality of looking at those jars was really quite. Um, yeah. You know, I was very sad, and it was, but but it it also brought to mind the enormous sacrifice that this woman who didn't graduate from high school was making to send me to MIT. You know, and mm-hmm. and and then to go to the EPA and have all of to have my career totally destroyed by people who had no idea the sacrifice that it took for my mm-hmm. mother. To, to send me to school and to make sure that I had the opportunities that she didn't have. It's one of the things I must admit that that's when I that's when I weep when I think about mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. The, about the sacrifice. The, the the other part that I, time that I weep is when I think about the fact that I was so uniquely qualified in many ways yes. to really yes. assist the people of South Africa um when they when they went from apartheid to liberation mm-hmm. under Nelson Mandela and the EPA understanding that made a decision that it was more important to feed the private sector and to feed business as opposed to the humanitarian mission that I was on and that I was that I was assigned to to work mm-hmm. on at EPA mm-hmm. right but yep yep and and that goes back to the lack of accountability. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, we talk about human capital and the value of building human capital. And for those of you who are out there listening, the, your federal agencies go out and they spend lots of money bringing in people like Marsha uh, Coleman Adebayo into the agency simply to minimize their contributions because somehow they can't break through their own culturization about how they think about people who look like her. Well, I think that was another – sorry. Go ahead. No, what I was going to say is that that was what struck me so hard, I suppose, when um, uh, when I first got the EPA was the name calling. Um, because I had just come from the United Nations where everybody sort of looked like me, to be honest with you. You know, I mean, and and to walk into a room and become the butt of jokes, like, oh, you know, we'll make you an honorary white man. 
mm-hmm. because we feel comfortable with you. Or when I came back from having my daughter to be told that a guy who walked into EPA with me literally the same day, same hour, who didn't have half the qualifications I had, was now my supervisor. And when I asked, you know, how did that happen, they said, well, you know, you made the decision to get pregnant, so you must have known that there would be consequences for that, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So I was really struck by your story of meeting the woman in the in the rest in the in the ladies' room <laughs> who was smoking the cigarette. <laughs> oh, that's the woman who who eventually died. died I thought yeah. you were talking about the woman. You know, when you once you file a lawsuit, what I think is, you know, this country is so schizophrenic in so many ways. I mean, we're about to celebrate the life and legacy of Dr. King in a couple of days, and yet when you access the law that he died for the 1964 Civil Rights Act, Title Title Seven or Title Nine, you are literally screwed, skewered in the federal sector. I mean, your career is over. Um, and so I, and so one of the ways that you sort of begin to realize that your career is over is that everybody begins to pull back from you because they to, just to be seen with you in the federal mm-hmm. government means that now yeah. they're they're a collaborator with you. And I thought the scene that you were going to talk about was when I walked into the bathroom and there was a woman in there going to the bathroom. And when she heard my voice, she literally stopped in midstream and ran out of the bathroom. <laughs> but, 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 you know, one of, one of the points about all of this is, you know, I, I titled this, this uh, episode of this program the price and cost right. of dignity. Yes. Because yes. when you allow people to behave in a way which targets their 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 dignity and targets their skills and their value in an organization, you are skeptic, you are chiseling away at the investment that the organization made to have that person there. Well, you know, uh, what, what I would say is that no one can chisel away at your integrity. No one can chisel away at your dignity. Those are things that you have to allow people to take from you. And one of the one of the issues that I think the government is so – one of the reasons why they were intimidated by me and people like me who call themselves whistleblowers is because because our dignity and our – Integrity is not for sale. In other words, I mean, what happens in the federal government is that, you know, when you when 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 the when the organization is trying to co-op you because they want you to be quiet because you've seen something that you shouldn't have seen or you know something that you shouldn't know, one of the things that they do is they try to buy you out. They try to give you money. They maybe they'll give you a bigger office or give you an office on the corner or whatever it is they're going to look from. They're going to give you. One of the reasons why they're intimidated by whistleblowers is because is because we're not for sale. We're not mm-hmm. for sale. And 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 so the only thing that we want is simply justice. And that's mm-hmm. really intimidating to an organization whose sole focus is power. Mm-hmm. How and the, do and you the pro- handle people like this? And the pa- and the and the problem with how we broker that power mm-hmm. is that some of us are for sale with a promotion, 
right. or special relationship with the supervisor, director, or whoever, or your chief. I love the chief thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you have real chief, then you have assistant chief. I know. Chief. <laughs> Only in the federal government would you have a job title as a bureau chief. <laughs> exactly. I mean, in in 2011. Yeah, ridiculous. But but when you when 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 we co- we are allowed to be co-opted. Right. Into the system that will ultimately, and I guarantee you, I've been around long enough, Marsha, to know that no matter how much you're co-opted, ultimately you yes. get eaten by the system. And and that and those are really the saddest people, to be honest with you. You know, we're going to have, as you probably know, I'm going to launch my book, you know, officially on Tuesday at Busboys and poets in Washington, D.C. And and not only am I going to speak, but uh, I'm asking other people who were instrumental in the passage of the first No Fear Act uh, to also join me and and, and talk about their experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I think what's interesting is that even though many of us were fired, even though we had horrendous, some had horrendous experiences, none of us are broken. Mm -hmm. None of us are broken. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the or unbowed or unbowed, and that is the difference between people who 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 allow the system to sort of suck them in and then yeah. use them and then spit them out, yep. and those of us who decide from the very beginning, I'm not for sale. You know, I have certain principles that guide my life, and if you have a spiritual basis like I do, you know, I truly believe that I was called to do things that were greater than just make a than just just make a paycheck. That mm-hmm. you know, my my life is is about service yeah. to other people and not just ser- simply service to myself. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we have a moral core and 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 so, and so the people that I see that are broken and and bent over are the ones who allowed themselves to sort of get sucked in, and then when they got chewed out, they didn't have anything else to fall back on. Yeah, yeah. We're, you're listening to Our Common Ground, and our guest tonight is Dr. Marsha Coleman Adebayo. She's the author of No Fear, A Whistleblower's Triumph Over Corruption and Retaliation at the EPA. And we're talking about her experiences uh, which brought her to writing this wonderful human and civil rights memoir as well as the development of the No Fear Institute. And we're going to be talking about that, uh, Dr. Coleman Adebayo, when we come back from this break. 610, I know you're on hold, and thank you very much. We're trying to get through as much of the information um as we can before we start taking our calls at 347-838-9852. I'm Janice Graham, your host, and we hope that you will stay with us. Dr. Adebayo, we're going to take a very, very short break. Thank you. The Environmental Protection Agency keeps tabs on the cleanliness of our nation's air and water. Now it's accused of treating some of its minority employees downright dirty. Diana Olick reports. Marsha Coleman Adebayo has been a senior analyst at the EPA for 10 years, and she claims it has been a decade of discrimination. I was an intruder in their world. I could participate in high-level staff meetings, I was told, only because my colleagues regarded me as an honorary white man. 
And I must admit, I was, I was so stunned. I, I remember hearing the laughter from around the table. Coleman Adebayo filed suit, and a jury awarded her $600,000. This week, she and other employees took their case to Congress and took on EPA Chief Carol Browner. One Chicago employee claimed he was often forced to serve as Browner's driver because he is black. At that point, I did feel the driving Miss Daisy syndrome. Browner was visibly shaken when Republican Congressman Mark Sanford took his side. And I think the phrase was, I wanted the black guy to drive me. That is deeply offensive to me. Perhaps people behaved poorly. Perhaps they had ulterior motives. It's the political season. Browner told us she was unaware of any complaints. Uh, we've more than doubled the number of minorities in our top ranks. We have the highest level uh, ever of minorities, African Americans, women, Hispanics, in our most senior ranks. There are human beings behind these numbers, and we're in pain. And what difference does it make if you bring two million of us to this agency, and we're all living in hell? Coleman Adebayo says there are more like her, just afraid to come forward. Carol Browner says one complaint is enough. And while she believes the Republican-led hearing may have been politically motivated, she does not deny the EPA may need to clean some of its own house. Julie. Diana Oligan, Washington, thank you. We are not here today simply because a jury recently found that the EPA discriminated against the female African-American Ph.D. employee. As Administrator Browner is well aware, this committee has been looking into allegations of intolerance at the EPA for over a year. The EPA retaliated against them for talking to Congress. I wrote and asked the EPA to investigate these claims. The EPA's investigation consisted of asking the very managers accused of retaliation what happened. The managers dismissed the claims and EPA, never talking to the employees making the allegations, accepted the manager's version of events. The Department of Labor's Office of Safety and Health ruled in favor of Dr. Rose Russo. OSHA found this transfer along with other EPA acts retaliatory. Diversity is not the issue. Harassment, retaliation, and discrimination are the issues. My name is Marsha Coleman Adebayo. I'm a senior policy analyst at EPA and co-founder, along with Selwyn Cox, of the EPA Victims of Racial Discrimination Group. I was repeatedly told that managers considered me uppity and much too aggressive for a woman. I wrote to Ms. Browner, asking her to please intervene on my behalf to stop the harassment. Finally, on August 18th of this year, a jury of the U.S. District Court in Washington found that the EPA and its administrator violated Title VII of the U.S. Civil Rights Act. The jury found the agency guilty of racism, sexism, color discrimination, and creating a hostile work environment. You can take your dog to EPA. You treat your dog bad at EPA like some of the black people. You will be in jail for treating that dog like that or your cat. But if you treat black people, you're promoted, rewarded, and moved forward. My name is Anita Mickens, and I'm also a survivor of racism and sexism here at EPA. In May of 1993, the Environmental Protection Agency sponsored the first National Environmental Council on Indian Lands in Cherokee, North Carolina. As a new upward mobility appointee, 
I was assigned to work with a non-supervisory GS-14 on the conference. My job involved assisting, involved assisting with obtaining funding from the, for the conference, as well as providing a list of potential participants from the various Indian nations. I was also expected to attend the meeting and be the EPA point of contact for conference attendees from the agency. While I was attending and participating in the conference, I received a telephone call from my manager requesting that I return to the lodge where myself and five other white female EPA employees were staying. Her direct order was that once I returned to the lodge, I was to clean the toilet in anticipation of Administrator Carol Browner's arrival. I told my manager that I would not do it. Federal, federal regulations then went through my mind. Do I do as I as asked and then file wrongful job actions when I return to EPA? When I went to the lodge, I removed items from the bathroom, cleaned the toilet, and did a general cleaning and placed garbage, including beer and wine bottles and cans in a trash bag. Later that evening, just before the closing ceremony, the manager told several conference attendees that I had cleaned the toilet for the administrator because the bitch could not use the toilet behind someone else. The gentleman who she was talking with asked her why she did not call the tribal office and ask for housekeeping. I remarked, she asked me to do it because I was the only black female staying at the lodge. I departed the conference by way of the rear door because I did not want anyone to, to see my face. I was so embarrassed and blamed myself for giving in to her request. I felt like a scorned woman and that I had disgraced not only myself, but all black women. I went to the lodge and locked myself in my room and cried. I grew up down south, and down south there were plantations, and there were full employments, and there were a lot of minorities working on the plantations. But, but the issue was, what, what, you know, did they get to think while they were there? Not, did we have a bunch of them? Not are there some more minorities, but have they been free to think as human beings, as talented individuals, while they're at the EPA? I think that's the real core question, not a, a bigger blue chart. Do you uh, believe uh, Dr. Coleman at Abeo was fairly treated by the agency? heard and by an initial view of the transcript. The judge has not issued an order yet. The jury has made their findings. There has not been an order. I want to be very, very clear about this. I am deeply troubled and so by is, what is, is in the is, transcript. Is that, a, is that a no? You don't believe she was fairly treated by the agency? I do not believe, based on the transcript, what I have seen of the transcript. I, her, colleagues, with the respect that any, with uh, the respect that any employee. 
the jury has heard the testimony, very troubling, deeply burning, deeply troubling to me. We will absolutely, when we get the judge's order, we will comply, absolutely. I have a request of you, Ms. Browner. Would you spend your personal time cleaning up this mess so that the new president does not get a can of garbage to start out the new administration? I am just floored. I cannot, let me ask you, Dr. Coleman Adebayo, at what point were, at, at these hearings, mm-hmm. were, were you um, still an employee at, at EPA at this time? Oh, yes, I, I was an employee until, until 2009. You know, I, what what just struck me from listening to the tape, and it was just it's painful it's today. Very painful, I know, I very know. Very painful today. It was as painful today as it was, you know, in 2000. Um, was, you know, I remember the day that President Obama nominated Carol Browner again, the woman that you're hearing him yes. calling, to be his energy czar. and. And, you know, she was a woman that the United States Congress, both Democrats and Republicans, had had soundly uh, not only rejected but, but reprimanded for the kind of racism and sexism and, and hostility she permitted in that agency. And I remember the day, because I, you know, I fought so I mean, I, I walked all over Virginia, too, um, to, to and I worked on on President Obama's campaign, and I held, you know, fundraisers, and I did everything that everyone else did to try to to get him elected. But I remember the day that he brought her forth, and he nominated her, and he said that she was going to be his uh, energy czar. Energy star. Mm-hmm. And I remember it was one of the most painful days of my life because here was a woman who had permitted the most egregious. Um, the most ins- insane policies of of racism and sexism, and what it said to me is that it just doesn't matter. Matter, I mean, you mm-hmm. you know, there's no accountability. These people can just do whatever they want to do, and then they're basically recycled back into political office the next time there's another person in office. And um, it, it's been a very – and what it said to federal employees, because remember, every federal employee must take no-fear training every two years. Right. Mm-hmm. If you join the federal government, you must take no-fear training within 90 days. The no-fear icon is on every single federal government website. Mm-hmm. So and everybody, I really mm-hmm. think that everyone ought to go to some government agency and read their no-fear report, because annually – yes. A report has to be issued regarding this kind of discriminatory behavior, complaints, and how they are handled in the agency. Right. And so when Carol Browner came back, you know, what that said to federal government workers is that these people can treat us any way they want to treat us, and they will be recycled back into the good graces of the government and and this was not a, a small manager. She was head of the EPA. 
right? And she was called before Congress because of the way she permitted her managers to treat me. Generally, when when you have a lawsuit, the head of the agency's name is you, you name the head of the agency as a part of the process. But in my case, I had worked with Miss Browner, so this wasn't that I was naming her just because she was head of the agency. She was intimately a part of my case, and mm-hmm. which is the reason why they had both of us testify before Congress, sitting next to each other. Mm-hmm. And and so you had Congress condemning uh, the, her behavior, Congress condemning the behavior of the managers under her directive towards me. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as the new administration came in, they brought her right back. She was recycled right back into the political process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what does you that know, say about accountability? Sector, in the private sector, if she had been called before the board yeah. or before a committee, uh, 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 an ethics committee or any other kind of personnel committee or any other kind of committee. Right. It wouldn't be a matter of her waiting for any court order. It yeah. would be a matter of her leaving. She yeah. just would have been summarily fired. Right. I mean, in my career, one of the most talented um uh, engineering people in this country in 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 the computer industry was a vice president of a division of uh, engineering for a company that I worked for, and because he had behaved badly and was found guilty in an investigation of sexual harassment, mm-hmm. it didn't matter who he was. The right. company had to pay a complainant over a million dollars right. in damages. He had to go. Right. Yeah, the, we, we have no market government. forces in the government. And so it doesn't. It just doesn't matter that under her administration the agency had to, the U.S., the, the taxpayers had to pay a million dollars out in my case in, t- yes. in terms of legal fees, in terms of the entire, and not only the time and, and effort, but, but that, was, that, was, that was definitely a painful tape to listen to again. Yeah. But I'm, very I'm sure important. I really very important. Do. Uh, it, it is important for people to hear that. And earlier before you came on, we played a, a, an interview that Amy Goodman had done with uh, Bunny Greenhouse. Yes. And she talked about uh, how they, how her colleagues were willing to set up a physical injury to hurt her physically. Yes. Right. Uh, we talked about the uh, – we had a, a piece of the – uh, of an interview with Shirley Sherrod and how she was treated, mm-hmm. and no one got fired. Mm-hmm. No one got fired at the Pentagon. No one got fired at um, USDA. No one at EPA got fired. In, in fact, they thrived. The in fact, they thrived. It's not even a question of being fired. The people in my case thrived after, um, after, after the court decision, after the, after the. Uh, taxpayers paid millions of dollars out. They thrived. In fact, you know, one person was sent to the White House on a detail after my court decision. One person was allowed to go to a think tank. One person, I mean, you know, they all, and then they were brought back within a couple years when they thought the dust had settled. They were all brought back to EPA and given even greater promotions. Mm-hmm. And that's and the, the reason why this culture. And the them were made SESs, and they came back. Right, and so that's the reason why this the culture is so insidious, and I call it yes. psychotic in many ways, yeah. because yeah. you know you have a culture that sort of feeds feeds on itself. It, mm-hmm. it, it 
cannibalizes itself, right? And so the agency sends out a very clear message. You know, you may get you, you know, you may get your hands caught in a cookie jar, but we'll take care of you. Don't worry, Bob. Yes. It's going to yes. be okay. And that sends a message to other people. If I really want to get ahead, if I really mm-hmm. want to get ahead, it's not through hard work. It's not through my education. I carry mm-hmm. out the orders regardless of how despicable they are. I carry yeah. out the orders of the people at, to- at, at the top. Right, and, and I do uh, – let me tell you about an, uh, another case, and uh, he is going to be with us in three weeks, is Ricardo Jones at the EEOC, mm. who was a whistleblower who indicated that the New York Regional EEOC was not investigating EEOC complaints brought by African-American complainants, and he was fired. So, you know, I I just, um, one of the things that people need to connect the dots, because in your case, they kind of harnessed you in on the work that you were doing in South Africa, and they protected the corporations despite the fact that hundreds of South Africans were were dying mm-hmm. from what an American company was doing there. Mm-hmm. In um in Bunny Greenhouse's case, they they um cornered her because of uh Halliburton uh, uh contracts which she refused to authorize no-bid contracts. And that is corruption in our government, and you are absolutely right. Many African Americans especially, with great talents, with, with, with just sharp educational credentials, go because they have a passion about what our government needs to do and is doing, and they want to contribute. Right. I mean, particularly, I mean, not particularly, but for those of us who came out of the civil rights movement or were children during the civil rights movement and 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 felt that we 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 wanted to make a contribution. Mm-hmm. We wanted to use our talents um in the service of other people and and then to go into the federal government and then to it literally be crushed. I mean, when you when you think about the federal service as a plantation, it's it's a really good example of how the system has mutated from one political paradigm to another political paradigm, and and so what we see is sort of a shifting from the overt racism of you know you can't drink water from this fountain to you know you can't really use your talents. And if you try to use your talents, what we're going to do is we're going to crush you. On the other hand, if you're prepared to do what we want you to do, um, to the extent that we need you, you know, we'll let you rise up mm-hmm. to the top. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And don't and don't ask for rewards and don't ask for to be acknowledged. Do the work. Let somebody else take the take okay. the acknowledgement and and. Don't expect that because you contribute in an outstanding way, you're going to be promoted. Because right. that's not how the, the, there is no merit in the system. There, there's no, there's absolutely no merit in the system, and that's one of the problems that that we have in the federal government 
is that you know is that people learn pretty quickly that if there if there's no merit if you're not if you're not going to rise based on your intellectual gifts that the way you rise is on the shoulders of other people and that's when you get that very sort of insane psychotic you know stabbing people in the back and undermining people um and and making sure that this that whole crab barrel syndrome um, mm-hmm. Is that you know I've got to bring down everybody so that I can rise to the top, and so it's a very it's a very dysfunctional system that's in place, but it works for those who are in power. I think that that's really what I want to raise is that it does work for those. The insanity at the bottom works for those in power, yeah. because there's so much um, uh, you know there, there's so much noise and there's and there's so much distraction at the bottom. That the people at the top basically are carrying out policies that I think most Americans wouldn't agree with, yeah, um, but but you know we're so busy filing lawsuits that we really don't have time to keep our eyes on the prize, um, and I think that that is really one of a, a very important point, you know that I you know I'm always telling people that I really wouldn't have have lived my life any other way, I'm really quite content with with the struggle that we've been trying to wage in the federal government. It has been a very difficult struggle, but we've made advances, not the advances that the people think of in terms of becoming a manager or director, but we've, we're creating a whole new body of civil rights legislation, which I think is, is, is very important. Uh, we have No Fear Two that's been introduced by Sheila Jackson Lee. We're working on another piece of legislation called No Fear Three. And we're actually in the process of thinking through whether or not um, civil violations are civil or whether when you are discriminated against, you develop hypertension, you develop cancer, whether that isn't criminal. Mm-hmm. So I you think know, what we're doing really now interesting is... interesting that you say that because I think of the woman that you write about, the secretary that you write about, who in fact died from... Mm-hmm. Uh, being broken in in at the EPA, right. uh, and and that certainly in my mind could be could be criminal, right. and 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 the other is that there is so much misfunction. Who is doing the study to determine how much cancer, how much um, heart disease, how much other kinds of sicknesses are being created by? the kind of toxic environment that people are asked to work in. Right. You know, so uh, I think there are a lot of ways in which we can begin to look at the story that you have so beautifully laid out. Um, I'm hoping that someone will, will come along and write the story on the other side of the table, which is a, the, the story of the toxic environment and the consequences of that in the private sector because there are some. And someone who will write the story about, I, I, I too am a MIT uh, alumnus uh, oh. long before you were there. Of course were you in? I was at Sloan. Okay, Sloan School, yes. Yeah, so um, uh, when I went there, I was the only african-american in my class and the only woman and uh that has its its stories too so i i think that as 
we can look back now at a couple of generations in, in white institutions and what that means in in, in the educational universe. Um, because we need to chronicle this stuff in order to be able to measure at at what point we're making any progress at all and the value of the progress. Yeah, the, we're going to you know, take a break. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, and no, I'll no, no. What I, what I was going to say is that a part of No Fear 3, as we're conceiving it now, would be a study, would be an epidemiological study wow. of the mm-hmm. federal government so that mm-hmm. we can begin to – so that we can begin to – um uh you know have hard data to determine mm-hmm. you know what what are the cancer rates and how out of whack are they from the general population mm-hmm. uh, what is what are stress levels in the federal government so all of that kind of hard data is very important for us to have because a lot of african americans think it's normal to get hypertension for example mm-hmm. i mean you know there's this steady stream of of misinformation about our bodies and in, in, in general culture in, in reality, racism, you know, I think can be directly linked to a lot of our illnesses. Mhm, mhm. And 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 we also have some other emotional illnesses that we pick up because we're trying so hard to cope. Yeah. Depressive illness mm-hmm. uh, among African Americans, not only in government service but also in the private sector and employment in general. Yeah. in trying to cope and survive. You know, Dr. Coleman Adebayo, sometimes I walk away and say, "Geez, everywhere we go, we're just try- we're just struggling to survive." Mm-hmm. What is this all about? You're listening to Our Common Ground. Our guest tonight, Dr. Marsha Coleman Adebayo, she is the activist that brought us um all of the organized activities that brought us to the No Fear Act, signed by George W. Bush, working on the No Fear Institute in Washington, D.C. She's also the author of No Fear, A Whistleblower's Triumph Over Corruption and Retaliation at the EPA, but she really could have titled this Corruption and Retaliation Where Black People Work. Uh, We're glad to have you tonight. Thank you for being with us. We're going to take a break, and then we're going to take your call, 610. I'm coming right at you when we come back from this break with Dr. Marsha Coleman Adebayo. This is Our Common Ground. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time, broadcasting black and bold. Each Saturday, 10 p.m., I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you.
Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Thank you for being here with us at Our Common Ground. We're here every Saturday, 10 p.m., speaking truth to power and ourselves. And we are so honored to have Dr. Marsha Coleman Adebayo, the author of No Fear, the activist who brought us the No Fear Act. Uh, Dr. Coleman Adebayo, I wanted to ask you about when you started the No Fear Institute and the work of many people who came, um, especially um, Reverend uh, Fontroy of uh, Washington, D.C., who worked with you to bring that about. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. The No Fear Institute is an outgrowth of a number of different organizations. Uh, the first organization we started in the federal government was an organization called the EPA Victims Against Racial Discrimination. That was a parent organization. That's how we started organizing within within the agency. Uh, we made a decision from the very beginning we were going to have what we called in-your-face activism, that we weren't going to play the game of a lot of black organizations where we're hiding and sort of whispering and 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 not being very transparent about the fact that we were unhappy at, at the policies of the government, um, and and so from that or so so we started that campaign, which I thought was fairly successful. Once the bill was introduced, we we organized a group that was nationwide, which is called the No Fear Coalition, in which we brought together a lot of different organizations throughout the country, both public and private, to fight for the passage of the No Fear Bill. Um, once um, once the bill was was in place, we organized the No Fear Institute, which is a 501c3 educational um, uh, organization. So the difference between the No Fear Coalition, which is an ad hoc political organization that um, lobbies Congress, that um, that initiates political actions. The No Fear Institute is an, is, an, is an educational institute where we educate the public about um, public, mm-hmm. uh, private sector, uh, public sector discrimination. Mm-hmm. And, and let me su- suggest to all of you who are federal employees out there especially that you should approach your regional directors in your agency or whoever and say, listen, we want to do a a lunch and learn and we want to invite the No Fear Institute in to do some education with supervisors, managers, directors, branch chiefs and chiefs in charge and bottle washers and (laughs) the chief thing really gets me. Um, and, and, And that is how you begin. 
because no one is going to come to you. And I I, I, I think that, you know, and I may be wrong, and you can get me right on this, um, uh, Marsha, is the whole notion that unions are scared to death of the R word. Which they is- don't want to deal with grievances that speak to racist behavior. You know, I'm I'm not I I just don't know. I think that one I I don't know about that. I just haven't seen any data on that. But one of the things that I'm very clear on in terms of unions, particularly the unions at EPA, is that at EPA the unions union leaders are still on the payroll at EPA. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. EPA allows them to work uh, on union activities while they're still being paid by the agency. That is a direct conflict of interest. Interest, exactly. Right. So, that, so that means that they can only do so much for um, their constituents. Yeah. And they can only do what they have negotiated in their contract to do. Well, no, I was going someplace else with that, and I was saying that to the extent that they began to raise issues and then their job, it's threatened because they're raising a lot of issues or they're raising too many concerns, then they have to choose between their clients and they have to choose between their own careers. Yeah, and that's, that's right. a very difficult place to to put anyone, right. quite frankly, right? That's and right. so it often means that they choose their own careers and then their clients um, suffer because of that. So yeah. that, you know, we need a, a situation where where unions are valued in this country where the money comes from a different pool than the agencies that are the alleged uh, potential discriminators, so that when um, so that when employees go to a union leader, they're not placing that union leader in a, yeah. in a position where they've got to choose between their family and their client. <laughs> Excuse me. One of the things I did want to to uh, ask you about, and that is the No Fear Fund, mm-hmm. where all federal agencies have a pot of money or contribute to a pot of money uh, for which settlements and legal fees and uh, and the, the costs associated with with bringing a complaint against the agency um, to, to uh, can you can you tell us how much EPA had to pay into that um, into that fund over the last say five years well let me just start with some background if you don't mind. When I was, um, because this was an important part of No Fear One, when I was going through my legal issues with the agency, I was surprised that the agency did not want to settle because it was clear that they, I thought it was pretty clear that they were going to lose in court. The reason why the agency didn't really bother about whether with the, with, whether or not my case had merit or not was because at and in in, in 2000 or 1999, 2000, agency, the monies for the settlements or judgments did not come out of their budgets. Mm-hmm. Um, agency heads had, had set up a slush fund in the Department of Treasury so that whenever they lost a case, they would just dip into their little slush fund. And they would and they would pay out of the slush fund. So that's 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 a good example. Is if you get a you know a parking ticket, and instead of you taking the money out of your banking your bank account, you send it to the North Pole and say, why don't you guys at North Pole pay pay for it? Mm-hmm. That's what the federal government was doing. So they never 
They never face any accountability. If they lost the case by a chance, ah, let's just send it over to the slush fund and we'll have Sally pay for it. Mm-hmm. What No Fear One said was that agencies could no longer do that, that if an agency is found liable, liable for discrimination, the money for paying the judgment or the settlement had to come out of that agency's budget. And then the agency had to go to Congress and it had to explain why their budget had been decreased by whatever the amount of the judgment or settlement was. And so we hope that Congress would play an important role in terms of really chastising the agency. And you're right, even firing the head of the agency if the agency was receiving a lot of deductions in their total budget. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 so, but the way it actually worked out, because the unions were concerned primarily that if an agency was hit with a substantial award and it couldn't afford to do it, couldn't afford to pay it, then the agency would begin to pass out pink slips or begin to decrease their um, their employment roles. And so, the compromise that we made was that the slush fund, which I'm still going to, because that's exactly what it is. Yeah, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. The slush fund became basically a loan center, which is what you're calling the no-fear center. It became basically a loan so that when EPA is hit, say, with a $300,000 lawsuit or judgment or settlement, they go to the slush fund and they borrow $300,000 now which provides the agency with a cushion so that it doesn't have to consider how they're going to pay it. And then Mm -hmm. within six to eight months, EPA must return the money, must pay, must pay, must return the money to the slush fund. So, um, so that's how that that's how it works at this point. Yeah. So now the money does come out of the agency, although mm-hmm. they get they get to borrow the money for six to eight months until they can, mm-hmm. you know, until they can uh, basically manipulate their budget in such a way that it won't present a hardship um, to the mm-hmm. employees. The the wow factor is three ways uh, coming out of your book. Wow, they keep people who supervise, direct, chief, and bureau chief. Um, who are just totally incompetent and 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 power and control freaks. Right. Two is that we spend an awful lot of money investing in people that we have uh, as a government no real intent of using their skills and contributions in our in the organization to get to the real mission, our stated mission of the organization. And three, that we have just supported, we are supporting a system of employment that is not based on merit. So, you know, you have to question, where is the OPM in this? Where, where are the inspector, general, uh, inspector generals? Where, where are these people, and do they not think that, that part of their job is to look at these situations and go into some of these agencies and say, hey, we want to interview, uh, let's say, 20% of all your African-American, Hispanic, and Asian employees to find out what what is really happening here. Who cares, though? I mean, literally, yeah. I mean, who really cares that's about this? Yeah. It, it, it's, yeah, it's a problem until 
until African American, Hispanic, and other people begin to organize, no one really cares about these issues, which is the reason why I called the No Fear Coalition. And one of the reasons why I wrote the book was because I wanted to write a tribute to a singular moment in American history where federal government workers took up the battle cry of civil rights and whistleblower protection and decided that we are going to change history. And it was a singular moment where where federal employees from all over the country came together and said things have got to change, and we are prepared to do whatever it takes to change the federal government. And we did. I think another another important point is that I try to raise in the book is that it doesn't take a thousand people to do this. Yes. When you look at the the core of the No Fear Coalition that was able to pass the first civil rights whistleblower law of this century, there were about twelve of us. Mm-hmm. There were about twelve of us. We met mm-hmm. at someone's house over over tea and, and, and toast and we started talking about how are we going to change the federal government. Yes. So it, it yes. doesn't take a mass group of people to do this, but you must be committed. You must be, you must, you must be focused, and and there has to be a level of commitment that's that's beyond yourself. Yeah. And so yeah. I wanted to talk about that paradigm in the book because I'm convinced that if we organize ourselves, we can really. The question that you asked in terms of what's happening to us, why are we dying, why are we becoming ill, those are issues that should concern us. Um, But because everyone is sort of, you know, crouched in their own small corner of the situation, you know, we don't get get to ask those really big questions. But we did at one point during the no fear struggle, and we can do it again. And I am so impressed with the anti-Wall Street protests that are taking place in New York and Washington and all over the country because it is, again, people deciding what they're going to tolerate and what they're not going to tolerate. And that's what we have to get to. We've got to decide, you know, are we going to continue to tolerate the insanity in these agencies or are we going to put a stop to it and assert our humanity? Right. We've got a call, and I'm going to go to our phones, and I apologize to all of you uh, who have called, but I think it's real important to hear what the issues are and what really has been accomplished in regard to the kind of terrorism, incompetence, uh, racism, corruption that goes on in your federal government. And also, uh, I I invited hundreds of members uh, of federal employees to join us tonight so that they could hear Dr. Marsha Coleman Adebayo talk about these issues. 610, I'm coming right at you. You're on our common ground. I respect you. Thank you for calling. Especially thank you for holding on. And I definitely respect you and yours and your guests, uh, Ms. Uh, Marshall and Dr. Marshall. Philadelphia, PA. Uh, yes, it is. Hotep. Hotep. Uh, I'll make this very brother. brief. I'll make this very brief. Uh, no apologies needed when you are speaking truth to power, as you do each and every week. It is well worth the time to listen in and soak up the knowledge. Uh, my, one, my, my two points is um, my wife, uh, she went through something 
as far as what uh, Ms. Mar- uh, Dr. Marshall was referring to, as far as creating a lawsuit, trying to be a whistleblower. But just like your book and your uh, information is saying, the price of dignity it, it's a big price. It's a large price, and you can't even put a price tag on that price because you you, you lose your life almost. Not, and I don't mean life and death as much as I mean you lose your friends, you lose your respect because people think you're you're a bad person. So she wound up dropping off of the case at a major Fortune 500 company. So because she, you know, it took a lot, and she wasn't that type of person to, 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 you know, to, to be able to go through as much as you have. So I thank you for going through what you did. My question to you would be, how did you find a lawyer that was strong enough to handle this case? Because when we tried to sue our union, our lawyers wound up being their lawyers. So <laughs> our lawyers switched sides on us. They they switched our reports. They made us look like the bad guy, and it, it was just long and drawn out. So how did you find a good lawyer, and do you recommend a list of strong labor activist lawyers? And uh, you can mute my mic so other people can get on, but I need to listen on my phone if you don't mind, Miss Janice. Okay. Thank you, Brother Brock. We'll get a get a response for you. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's imp- – it's, it, 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 the issue that he's raising is a critical issue for us at this point um, because in order to go through the system as it currently consists, you need a really good lawyer. It's not just having a good lawyer. You need a lawyer who's really on your side. And when you're dealing with the United States government that has unlimited financial resources and who can, in fact, buy your lawyer, um, you, there are times when you don't know whether your lawyer is working for you or working for the U.S. Mm-hmm. government, and 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 I think a lot of us have have confronted this issue, and I, I applaud your your listener for raising this important this important issue. I think one of the the strategies that we have to employ is that if you can find a lawyer who will take your case on contingency, where there's a vested interest in both of you winning. If you mm-hmm. win, he wins. But to the extent that you're paying your lawyer as you go along and there's no vested interest in him protecting you, then there could be a conflict of interest between your attorney and forces that have more money to pay your attorney than you do. So I think my first suggestion is to try to find a lawyer who will take your case on contingency. But but you always have to be concerned about... um, the power that you that you're confronting when you when you when you are um suing the United States government that has you know a trillion you know a couple trillion dollars trillion dollars budget and your budget is so much smaller than that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then 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 it's really hard to 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 keep a handle sometimes in terms of who's representing you right i i think that the larger issue, however, and this is what we're dealing with now in terms of No Fear 3, is that I think we need to get off of their side of the chessboard. In other words, their side of the chessboard consists of lawyers and judges and and, and, and people in the legal profession. And I think somehow we we need to be creative now because we understand after 20, 30 years of working in this system that it doesn't work for us. So I think we need to start we need to go back to the drawing board, and we need to understand how do we create a system 
that works for us, not for the judges and not for the lawyers, but works for working people. And I think at this point what we're looking at is mediation systems where people can represent themselves. We're looking at different kinds of systems where community organizations can get involved and they can be the arbiters of decisions so that we completely take it out of their Mm-hmm. Off of their side of the chessboard Because once you're playing On their side of the chessboard We almost always lose yeah. So we need to go back to the to the Drawing board 30 years after now And figure out how do we begin To create something that works for us Right Thank you, Thank you for that very eloquent uh, Response We're going to go to 832 You're on the air We've just got a little bit of time Please bring your question I respect you and thank you for being with us. 832, you're on the air. It looks like we lost 832. The 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 other thing, too, is I think sometimes people start listening and they forget they're on the phone. Uh, uh, the other is you, you, you when you take on... Um, the federal government, uh, Dr. Coleman Adebayo, is that you're taking on almost 13,000 lawyers. Right, exactly. It's daunting. Lawyers that can spend as much time as as they need. And it's intergenerational. Uh, it's intergenerational. That's what's interesting. Exactly. Is that people mm-hmm. retire and then their children take over that that case. I mean, you know, metaphorically, you know, you yeah. get a, a lawyer coming right out of law school. Now you've been at you've been you've been adjudicating now for 10, 15 years and you're looking at someone across the room who could be, who's who's your child's age. Yeah. So, and and that's yeah. what I'm trying to say. On one level, we've got to we've got to reassess this situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I you know, I, I think, you know, Dr. King and his cohorts, you know, God bless them. I think, obviously, the best of intentions for us. Mm-hmm. But, you know, 30 years after uh, of working with this system, I think we basically understand that this system is not fair. Only 2 to 3% of us ever get in front of a jury. Mm-hmm. That means that 97% of us are weeded out. If that isn't the definition of something that's unfair, I don't know what it would be. Yeah, yeah. So that means and, that and we, I'm, go ahead. I'm very serious about federal employees who are listening to us tonight to get a copy of this book, No Fear, to read it. And one of the things to do is to get your regional director to do a lunch and learn or a special seminar for the agency and bring in the No Fear Institute to do education so that people become aware that their game, to a certain extent, has been peaked. Right. And if you don't mind, I'd like to let people know where they can get the book. Um, okay. You can get the book uh, at Amazon.com. If you type in the search engine, No Fear Marsha, and my Marsha is spelled M-A-R-S-H-A, No Fear Marsha, uh, the book will, will come up, No Fear, A Whistleblower's uh, Triumph Over Corruption and Retaliation at the EPA. Uh, you can also get the book at Barnes and Nobles and and Powell's and other bookstores around the country. Um, but you know the and word Amazon is, also has it in the e um, that's an e-book. e-book. 
Mm-hmm. And we're also, you know, discussing, uh, you know, a, a movie about uh, about based on the book now, which I'm very excited. Wow. Yeah. yeah which I'm very excited. And what is about. your website? My website is www. Marsha M A R S H A Coleman C O L E M A N hyphen Adebayo. A is an apple. D is in David. E as in Edward. B as in boy. A as in apple, Y as in yellow, O as in orange, Marsha Coleman hyphen dot com. And it also has links to Amazon and to Powell and Bus Boys and Poets. If you're in the Washington DC area, you can pick up the book there as well. Well, I certainly am honored and appreciate the time that you've spent with us at our common ground tonight. And I I I just cannot tell you how appreciative I am of the sacrifice that you made. Well, well thank you so much. And I, I feel the same way about the work that you're doing. I'm I'm so appreciative of people who use their time and talents to educate our community, to help us understand complex issues and to get the word out. So I thank you so much uh for having me this evening. And and for those of you who are federal employees, and we often do, we are no longer broadcasting Monday through Friday, and we often do specials on issues that are important. If you want to do some anonymous organizing and planning around the issue of retaliation, corruption, and racism in the federal government, and you are a federal employee, you can email us at OCGinfo at OurCommonGround.com, and we will be more than happy to accommodate uh, a two-hour conference on what people can do at the local level in your agencies, because if they can't be brought to their senses, if somehow that system uh, is not working for you and you become their victim, you can organize and activate your way out of it. And Dr. Marsha Coleman Adebayo has given us the blueprint. Dr. Coleman Adebayo, my best wishes for you on the launch of your book. Thank you. Uh, I have sent the notice about your appearance at uh, Busboy and Poets in uh, Washington, D.C., to my granddaughter, who's a student a freshman student there, and I've been saying to her that's the place to hang out. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a wonderful place with a lot of very yeah. interesting people going through there. And, and so, and yeah, I'd like to just encourage people to stop by and meet me yeah. tomorrow, and um, and we're going to have a very interesting discussion tomorrow, uh, on Tuesday, rather. On Tuesday, right. Okay, and thank you so very much, and I, I look forward to um, – to, to meeting with you uh, when you come up to some alumni events, uh, things I always try to plan, and then, uh, you know, I don't do it very often. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank um, you so much. I've I've enjoyed the conversation this evening. And thank you. We've been just very, very um, blessed and benefited very much from your coming to us tonight. Thank, thank you. you so very much, and good night. Good night. And thank you all for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. That was Dr. Marsha Coleman Adebayo. Her book is No Fear, A Whistleblower's Triumph, 
over corruption and retaliation at the EPA. Um, and we thank you for being with us in our chat room tonight. We have uh, this computer is moving kind of kind of slow. Um, we thank uh, Shaka Zulu for being with us. You, we thank uh, Alpha for his assistance in producing the show tonight. Lions Den. We have guests, Smooth Operator, and Twee. 1968, uh, our dear sister Rena Bless was with us earlier, and uh, we thank her. Well, she's still with us. So we thank her for all you chatters in our in our uh, chat room. You make it a very, very good uh, experience. Don't forget that on October 28th, which is a Friday, our Common Ground will be doing a special with Judith Brown Dianus, who is the co-director of the Advancement Project. You have probably heard her on MSNBC, NBC, and Rachel Maddow, and Ed Schultz, and some others, um, a special on voter suppression. Uh, she'll be with us, and... Um, I'm really looking forward to that program. And for all of you new listeners out there, especially those of you who have joined us as a result of our invitation to um, national members of blacks in government, thank you for joining us, and we hope that you will join us each Saturday night at our Common Ground. Uh, it's going to be uh, a heavy week this week, uh, occupying everything. We suggest that you also look at Occupy the Hood. It is indeed a movement. Uh, we suggest that... Um, here, here's a book uh, recommendation. In addition to uh, Dr. Um, Coleman Adebayo's book, No Fear... I am also recommending this week that you pick up, if you have not read uh, Professor Derek Bell's book, And Still We Are Not Saved. It is a book that is a must-read. Uh, we thank you for being with us. Don't forget, tomorrow at 7 p.m., enter the lion's den here on Blog Talk Radio. Navaxar, let's talk at... I believe 6 o'clock, I'm not sure. Monday night, it's at TruthWorks Network. It's um, Power Views, and we're going to be running some, some special at Power Views, and we hope that you'll join us. Thank you for being with us. I'm Janice Graham, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Next week, we're going to be talking about the war on drugs. From Ken Burns and Lynn Novick, it was exactly what America wanted, and it caught us completely by surprise. It turned citizens into criminals and criminals into kings. It changed the very nature of our democracy twice. Prohibition. What a stupid idea it was that people actually thought you could get away with this. 
you could actually ban alcohol, completely eliminate its usage in American society. It's, it's a preposterous idea. Next Saturday here at Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Drugs have always been parts of some very rare subcultures. Every culture drinks alcohol. It has fermented or distilled spirit. The real connection about prohibition, to me the thing that there's nothing new under the sun, is that this is a story about right-wing, single-issue campaigns that metastasize. This is the story about the demonization of immigrants. This is the story about uh, state and local governments complaining about unfunded mandates. This is the story of smear campaigns against Democrats. This is a story about unintended consequences. Thank you once again for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Join us next week with LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. In the context of the recently premiered Ken Burns documentary, Prohibition, talking the war on drugs and its failures and what it has brought us. We'll be joined by our friend, the executive director of LEAP, Neil Franklin, and also joining us, Jim Jarrock, a member of the board of LEAP and a former Chicago prosecutor. 10 p.m., I'll be listening for you. Says the signifying monkey to the lion one day, Hey, there's a great big elephant down the way. Going round talking, I'm sorry to say about your mama in a scandalous way. Yes, he's talking about your mama and your grandma too. And he don't show too much respect to you. Now, you weren't chair, and I sure am glad, cause what he said about your mama made me mad. Signifying monkey, stay up in your tree. You are always lying and signifying, but you better not monkey with me. The lion said, yeah, well, I'll fix him. I'll tear that elephant limb from limb. Then he shook the jungle with a mighty roar. Took off like a shot from a forty-four. He found the elephant where the tall grass grows and said, I come to punch you in your long nose. The elephant looked at the lion in surprise and said, Boy, you better go pick on somebody your size. But the lion wouldn't listen. He made a pass. The elephant slapped him down in the grass. The lion roared and sprung from the ground. And that's when that elephant really went to town. I mean, he whipped that lion for the rest of the day. And I still don't see how the lion got away. But he dragged on more dead than alive. And that's when that monkey started his signifying jive. Signifying monkey. You are always lying and signifying, but you better not monkey with me. The monkey looked down and said, Oh, what is this beat up mess I see? Is that you, lion? <laughs> Do tell, man, he whipped your head to a fairly well. Give you a beating that was rough 
for nothing. You supposed to be king of the jungle. Ain't that some stuff, you big overgrown pussy cat? Don't you roar. I'll hop down there and whoop you some more. The monkey got to laughing and jumping up and down, but his foot missed the limb and he plunged to the ground. The lion was on him with all four feet, gonna grind that monkey a hamburger meat. The monkey looked up with tears in his eyes and said, Please, Mr. Lion, I apologize. I meant no harm. Please, let me go. And I'll tell you something you really need to know. Signifying monkey, stay up in your tree. You are always lying and signifying, but you better not monkey with me. The lion stepped back to hit. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 